The weather is finally getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year, like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost like the middleman that passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. I am so excited. I have two gorgeous, lightweight cashmere sweaters coming my way. One camel, one heather gray. I cannot wait to wear them in the warmer months when it's chilly in LA. Throwing them over my shoulders. Going to look so cute. Can't wait. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash judging Megan for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash judging Megan to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash judging Megan. And now back to the podcast. Mother's day is almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time tested gift around a watch. She can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics or tried and true bestsellers movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. So uh, I have something to tell you guys. Um, I'm a little embarrassed to start out my podcast today telling you this, but remember how I said I was doing dry January? Um, That that didn't happen for me. So um, on day six, when we had um, Duck Dynasty raiding the Capitol, uh, I started drinking again and I poured myself a vodka martini. So I broke dry dry January and now it's turned into damp January. Um, I'm starting to try and not drink again, um, but so far not so good for that. And then my other update is, remember how I told you I was doing Weight Watchers? So that's not going so hot for me either. Um, My problem is I can't eat hard boiled eggs and rice anymore and vegetables. And I just pretty much had a really bad week and I would run out of my points by like noon. So we're off to a great start. Other than that, I'm doing just dandy. 2021 is going really fantastic so far. And um, all kidding aside, uh, I have a really, really great guest today. Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owners, turn your smartphone into a cash register. PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy way to get paid in store, and they deliver the same security and trust PayPal is known for online, in person, even if you're a cash-only business. With PayPal QR codes, you can accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. There's no additional hardware or software needed. Generate your unique QR code from the PayPal app and display it on your device or print it to display in store. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app. You only need your smartphone. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. Well, his name is Stephen Bowman. I call him Bowman. We all call him Bowman that know him. And he is probably the funniest person I've ever met. One of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. And you might know him from Bravo's Flipping Out, which I was a huge fan of. And also I'm a huge fan of Jeff Lewis. So I'm, we're going to go into talking about that. But Stephen's also a famous Hollywood makeup artist. And he also is an actor and has a movie that's out on Prime right now. So we're kind of going to dig into all of that stuff and just kind of tell his story and 
you know, the, the good things in his life and like along with good, you know, a lot of people experience trauma and Stephen's gone through that in his own life. So we're going to get into that and I'm going to welcome Stephen Bowman. Hi, Bowman. Hi, hon. How are you? Oh, I'm just great. I'm just, <laughs> my body's starting to look like Mrs. Doubtfire and, uh, oh, yeah, my God. and I broke dry January. How are you? Oh. I'm doing good. Um, I'm surprised I didn't break it, but I might break it after this. I don't know. Oh God, I hope not. I'm so no, impressed no. by people that can, I mean, it's pretty sad that I can't make it through a whole month. I'm gonna start again today, um, but I'm always really impressed by people that really can stick to dry January. It's impressive that you've gone this far. What are we like midway through the month? Yeah, but I mean, it's such a boring time of the year. So even if you're trying, you're just so bored. You're like, what, what the hell do I do? Well, like we're still in a pandemic. So you need yeah. to have a drink. So don't judge yeah. yourself. What else do you do except for like, talk to yourself in the mirror? Like I've decided from this pandemic, I might bring back um, having my invisible friend from childhood, Sheila. Oh, um, is that I okay? Talk to her. I talk to her all the time. God, I love that, Sheila. <laughs> Anyways, I just wanted to thank you for coming on today. I want to start out by telling the story of how we know each other and mm -hmm. just a little bit about your fabulosity. So Stephen and I met, God, many, many years ago. My husband and Stephen were in an acting class together. And when we were all in our like 20s and 30s, we all were had this like group of friends that would hang out, most of them creative and actors and working actors and you know, it was just a really, really, really fun time. And, you know, half the time we were laughing so hard that, you know, it was the kind of laughing where you would pee in your pants. We were just stupid. We would do stupid <laughs> things. But um, For sure. we did. So Stephen and I would just, you know, we would be at parties. You want to tell some of the stories? Do you have any memories of when we were young? Oh, my God. What's a good I mean, story? No, none, good that, story? none that I could really speak of. There's always new charades. There's always, um, <laughs> oh my goodness. There's always the one-eyed prowler. There's always- uh... Oh no! <laughs> God, we can't go into this. That's a, it's a PG show. We would, we would um, I kind of touched on this in my second right. podcast, not to get like, well, well, I'll just go into it right away. Okay. My second podcast I, was about my best friend and mm -hmm. how I had lost her. And you were with me on the trip. You, we all mm -hmm. took a trip to, to Mexico. And mm -hmm. that's when, you know, it was right after it happened. It was right when I flew home. And, you know, I remember it was like you, Claudia, Jenny, like our whole group of friends. And we just, you know, you guys were so great. Obviously my now husband, Ron, we just like, you tried so hard to make me laugh and you know, help me heal in such a dark time. And that's something mm -hmm. I'll, I'll never really forget, you know, because like I've said before in life, I feel like one of the best things in life is to have a sense of humor and laughing and laughing for me. Mm -hmm. And I believe for you is something that's really helped me get through some of my darkest times and hours in my life. But I'm going to start um, just by asking you about you. I want to find, I want my audience to know all about the fabulous Stephen. So you grew up, where'd you grow up, Stephen? Tell everyone like what a little bit about your life and like how you got into like moving to Hollywood and in the business and just give me kind of the backstory. Oh, uh, well, backstory. I mean, I don't know how far back you want me to go. I was raised, I was born in Houston, Texas, but I was raised in um, the East Bay of San Francisco in a town called Concord. So there's like, um, yeah, Concord, Martinez, Walnut Creek area. Um, my dad was in the Coast Guard, but when I was born, he, um, he had left. Uh, he became a police officer. My mom was an ICU nurse, and then later on the charge nurse at the county jail. Um, so I grew up around, you know, nurses and sort of cops. My dad eventually became a private investigator. His cop career didn't last very long. Um, and then, um, I don't know. I, uh, I mean, I was a crazy little feminine kid and um, we had some, I grew up with a, another family that lived down the street called the Rizzonis and there were six of them. 
and there were five brothers and the youngest was a girl and she was my brother's age who's three years older than me so there was a lot of influence from the that family for me growing up because it was just my my brother my sister and I and um yeah I mean where would you like me to go from there in terms like I mean when you say when you say growing up you were feminine like when you say obviously I'm I'm gonna tell my audience do you want to come out of the closet right now or I think it's time I think think it's time time. yeah so do you want to go into I'm gay oh my god (laughs) I'm shocked I had no idea (laughs) thank you for sharing um, yeah, so when you say that, was that something like you knew from a young age, you were, you were struggling, you talk about, you know, your parents, like growing up with, you know, n- a nurse and a cop and mm-hmm. then the other family, what, like, tell me about that. What was like, did you struggle as a child? Was that hard for you having a father as a, that's a policeman? Well, my father, I mean, I don't really have so much the knowledge of him being a policeman. I think by the time I started, you know, formulating a, a memory. Um, my dad was what you, uh, was called, was a fire protection engineer. So he sort of went into buildings and sort of helped them devise like, you know, how to avoid, you know, a fire being started in businesses. And he did that for a while. Then my father just sort of, um, my father was sort of a, a wandering soul. He never quite did what he wanted to do. And I think he felt quite limited Uh, being a family man, being married. But I never felt judgment for my family. And I never felt any sort of um, uh, retaliation from being a feminine child. I think I always knew I was gay. I always knew I was attracted. From from what age you're saying? I I mean, I think as far as I can remember, but again, that wasn't formed sexually in my mind yet. I just knew that was a draw. There was just a feeling for it. But I was never, um, you know, my family wasn't calling me out. And it wasn't until like third grade, you know, behavioralism started, you know, coming to, to the surface that, you know, really fourth grade is when it started being pointed out to me by, you know, other kids. And So were, so were you teased? And is that, like, what was your childhood like? Was it, were, were you well adjusted? Were your parents accepting of you? Was your family accepting of you? You talk about your neighbors, were they accepting? Yeah, it never came up. You know, I was raised in a, well, my mother was Catholic, is Catholic. Um, my dad converted to Catholicism, but I think he just did whatever my mom wanted him to do. Um, and then the Rizomis were, you know, an Italian and Irish Catholic family. So I was, around a lot of that. So, you know, I was raised in the 70s. Um, you know, my, my formative years, my high school years were in the 80s. So I think that there was a stigma upon being gay. It wasn't as accepted as it is now, but no one was like, oh, don't worry. I think by the time I started being made fun of for it, it started causing me a great deal of shame because then that's when I started hearing, you know, religiously also that, you know, being gay is a sin and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So I felt like there was just something wrong with me, but my parents uh, weren't very present. You know, they had yeah. a very tumultuous, at times violent relationship, um, mainly with my mother throwing the punches and my dad restraining, but my dad was more passive and I'm not sure would retaliate but it caused um, from a very early age um, a, a sense of tremendous uh, trauma where I sort of, I don't know, like I went into protection mode. I, if ever I felt there was a fight brewing, especially when I was going into my, um, in my early youth, you know, 14, whatever. Um, I grew up in kind of a messy household. My mom and dad weren't really housekeepers. So like we would take the laundry out of the dryer and just throw it in a chair and like cats would sleep on it and dogs would sleep on it. And every morning we'd just wake up and shake it off and like put our clothes on and run it out. But I remember when I could feel my mother starting, you know, I could just feel it coming. And it was very, very frightening. And was she abusive towards you, or like was no. she? No. Okay. So it was just sort of a, a thing where it was between your parents, and you felt it. And what would you do? Would you hide? Would you? No, I, 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 I'd start cleaning or folding, thinking if I had things in order, you know. Um, and I still try to make sense of that to this day. But it's like I was trying to keep order. 
I was trying to keep everyone. And then they'd come to the bedroom of like my brother and I and apologize. And, and then that left me thinking, oh, well, now's my time to tell them, you know, maybe I can help you. You can always tell me your problems. And I'm like eight years old saying this stuff. Yeah. And I could, I know my mother's ashamed of it. I mean, she is, she's since obviously uh, moved on and, and apologized for her behavior, but it caused a lot of damage. They weren't great parents in terms of paying attention to their children. So I think in some ways we were, um, we were neglected. I know I was, and I realize that more now. And have you like brought this into your adulthood? Was this something, did you know from a young age that you wanted to be an actor? And I know I've talked about what I had my friend Brian Pote on um, before, and he's also a really brilliant actor. Mm -hmm. Steve is also a very, very brilliant actor. And <laughs> this is so kind of funny. Steven and I did a play one time together. I was Oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. There's a story. There's a story, maybe. Okay, right there. You, tell, you tell the story. You tell the story. Well, you know, the show was kind of a shit show to begin with. It was. Um, I had come in. I think there was someone else cast, but they had dropped out. And I had come in at the last minute to sort of take over our part. And we went into the show. And on this one particular night, there was wine backstage and um, our co-star and, and Megan, I think Megan had like a glass of wine, of course. Before it wasn't show. like, you know, yeah. wasn't like pouring him down. She, you, you, you knew you were there to perform. But then you and I got in this like little argument. Like I was like pushing you on stage. You weren't, you weren't going fast enough. And you were like, don't push me. Like right before we went on, I'm like, fuck off, you know, fuck you. And then we went out and we're on stage and then we're like doing the scene. Well, then we left behind our other co-star who comes in later in the scene and she was just still pounding wine. So when we uh, got up on stage, when she finally came in for her entrance, she was blitzed. I mean, it was, I, it was legitimately, we were both like, what do we do? It was terrifying. Yeah, we, you and I forgot our little tiff we looked at each other and we're like okay yeah you're forgiven let's 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 get through this i don't even know how we did it i blanked out but she just like went on this long monologue and you and i looked at each other like like it was like um it was like completely improv this monologue and we were both like it was really a funny like a funny experience um but going back to you being a really amazing actor you've I've seen you in plays with my husband and, you know, I just, that's something I think you're really talented at. Um, Thank you. I appreciate I'm that. that you've pursued it for all these years and you've mm -hmm. kept going, but going backwards a little bit, I just wanted to ask if that's like, I know for me, that's something I would do. I would escape that way. Is that kind of like how you became creative or do you feel like me where you just came out that way? You know, I, I, I might've just come out an entertainer. I mean, I was a pretty outgoing kid. But I started knowing what that I wanted to be an actor very early in my life, for sure. Like I was just drawn to it. And it was a way for me to like watch children's shows and like things like Different Strokes or Silver Spoons and like sort of see these people that were, you know, in my age group and thinking, wow, how fun is that? Like, look at what they're doing. And I really wanted to um, be a part of that. And my brother, who's three years older than me, we shared a room all our lives and um, aren't not all, I mean, we're still alive, so we don't share a room anymore, but God, I, um, so, I know I'm all, <laughs> we have bunk beds here. Um, <laughs> no, we, until he was 18 and uh, left the house, but um, I would always, you know, jump around and be silly for my brother. And my brother was a big fan of that. Like he, he did think I was funny. We had our normal brother fights and, you know, stuff like that. But my brother was a big um protector of me for sure my brother used to take me into the bathroom and I'm like teach me to walk cool Te teach me to not look gay and he was like well I don't like he would never say that you are but he would always say you don't need me to teach you anything you're like you're funny you're great so that was really cool because sometimes with siblings we can have this you know they can sometimes exacerbate what you're going through that's traumatic. And my brother was not like that. 
Do you um, feel like, do you feel like um, he was accepting and your family just knew? I mean, it sounds like it was tumultuous. My mother, my mother, my mother felt like at three years old, that might be the case. Okay. With and me, then what, what age were you when you actually came out of the closet and, and going, Oh God, were you, when you say you were bullied at school, were you bullied at school, right. all of grade school? And is that something, I mean, all of these things yeah. trigger, you know, we, you and I offline, and you can talk about this, have talked about, you know, struggling with depression on and off throughout our lives, right. you know, um, is right. that something that really triggered all of this stuff? Just the things going on at home and then feeling ashamed, you know, with the Catholic, the whole Catholic shame, because I'm actually Catholic as well. Um, is that also mm -hmm, mm -hmm. kind of like spiraled this out to get to a, a place where you really struggled with the depression? Well, as far as depression is concerned, I think my mother was extremely depressed. And in that day and age, there was really no sort of, you know, bipolar, anything that was really, um, which, I don't know she's been diagnosed with or, or not, but it was, it was a, it was a very clear, rageful personality shift that was opposite of her presentation in life or even her presentation when she was like mellow mom. Um, my mom worked nights. So um, her depression showed by sleeping all day long. And I would be afraid to walk by her room because her door would be open. And sometimes I'd like peek and she'd say things like, what are you doing? Or what are you looking at? Or something like that. And it would, it would just fill me full of dread because I didn't want to really deal with her, but I, I wanted to make sense of what was happening around me. So um, I think coming from someone who was so severely depressed and really didn't know how to deal with it or have even though she was in the medical field, the resources. She took me to therapy early on and would just say like eight starting, I think eight or nine and would say he comes from an unhappy home and then leave me there and then come back in an hour, but never do anything about the situation at home. Because my mother was a Catholic woman who felt you're in this marriage, you've got to make it work. But she would miss church all the time. So my experiences of church were, they, I mean, I did the catechism, I did the first communion, but like she would like force my dad to take us to church. And then my dad would be like, oh, go run in and grab a program and then come back out and we'll go get ice cream. So, I mean, he was sort of betraying her, you know, her, what she wanted him to do, which is something she should have done herself. It was sort of like, if you take them to church, this will all be you know, forgiven or better. So then we'd show her the program when we got back. It was sort of just this routine we would do. So religion didn't mean much to me. I saw it for what it was for them at the time, which was this, this superficial band-aid or something for my mother, not really for my dad at all. My dad almost didn't want to be there. He loved me and he loved us, but he just didn't want to be there. And you could just see the, the weight of his despair and also my mother's. And I mean, she took all his camera equipment, all his private investigative stuff and threw it in the pool once. They would go out to dinner and then she'd leave him there and you'd have to walk back. Like it was just constant. Um, so religion for me was, it just was like a, oh, I guess I gotta do this. Like going to school or something. It, um, I didn't have this faith in God, so to speak, that, you know, I'd sit and pray to him and say, oh, make this stop. Maybe I would in some respect, because it really was all I knew. But I felt like I, I was just in survival mode. I had to make things happen. And by the time I was in, you know, catechism, kids started making fun of me. And I thought, well, isn't this a place I should feel protected? Isn't church or being around this someplace where I should feel protected? And I didn't. And I didn't feel protected at school. I didn't feel protected at church and I did not feel protected at home. So by the time between the sixth and eighth grade is when the bullying got pretty horrific for me. And I remember just going through a whole day being terrified to go to school um, because there was one particular bully, Shane Spittler was his name, Shane Spittler. Um, and he just, he just was, you know, didn't like what he saw and, chose me to wreak havoc on and you know I was kind of 
attracted and fascinated by him, but also terrified of him at the same time. And, um, you know, I get off the bus, I go home and I could tell you, I could hear my mother screaming like halfway down the street. And then I knew I had more to deal with walking in the house. Was the screaming something that was like a constant thing? Was there, uh, was there a every, 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 almost every, it seemed like almost every night it would start. And it was would scare my brother. Was she a drinker? Would, did your mom drink or? No, was, no. Okay. So it was just like, she would get set off and it would be a constant thing. So basically you were, you were getting it from all areas. You were getting it from home where you were afraid to go home from the fighting. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. you were also getting it at school and you weren't mm-hmm. feeling like going to church, going to mass. You didn't, you felt like you were from every single direction, not getting supported, not getting yeah. left, hiding. Right. You know, there was escape from bullying. I understand. And it's unfortunate that we have these young people committing suicide nowadays because the, the bullying can be relentless and it's terrible. And it fills my heart with just so much pain. Um, but I remember feeling suicidal. I remember even at that time before internet, there was no escape. And being a sixth grader who wants to die is terrible. But my mother was also very honest about herself and her life and very much like my mother. And, um, you know, she came from a lot of pain and she came from, you know, an immigrant mother from Ireland who had her when she was 39 in 1939 and um, a father who was a gambler and an alcoholic who gambled away their home when she was, you know, a girl, and they had to go live in the projects of Leo. And um, the mother would wake her up in the middle of the night, and they'd go to bar to bar looking for the father. She would at times take out her anger on my mother. She was a superstitious uh, woman. I remember my mother telling me a story about her saying, I mean, she was a, a great woman. I had never got the opportunity to know her. My mother did love her very much, but um, she wasn't educated. You know, she went and worked as a servant from a, a very young age, um, my grandmother. So she didn't know a lot. And there was this sort of myth that if you go into the ocean when you are got your period, you're somehow uh, will get pregnant. And my mother had gone into the water and this terrified my grandmother. So she took her to the doctor. And then the doctor said, um, can you bring your mother in here for a second? And then um, my mom sat out in the waiting room and then my grandmother came back out and she's like, what's the matter, um, mom? And she was like, nothing, your, your, your mother's just ignorant. So there was a learning curve for sure, but my mom also grew up, I think, in, in somewhat of a survival mode. And then it's just repeated that. that you say that because a lot of times, I mean, trauma, like abuse, all of those things are, are hereditary. You know, if you're a victim, a lot of times your children will be victims. So you have to figure out how to break the cycle. Another thing you brought up was, you know, being suicidal. What, did mm-hmm. you ever... Did you ever try to commit suicide? Was it ever that bad in your childhood? I mean, one of the latest, you bring this up, one of the latest statistics that I just read the other days, um, one in four people under the age of 25 have considered suicide in the last 30 days. So this is an Mm -hmm. an updated statistic. And Mm -hmm. I can't imagine, you know, what it was like being back in the 70s and 80s and you know, being gay and also being in a house where you feel like there's abuse going on and, you know, wanting, considering suicide. So was that something you struggled with as a teenager or into your adulthood? I think I struggle with the thoughts of it to this day. Now it's not, you know, when you have an issue like that, when you have an experience like that, it's something you have to know that happens and then work through it. I mean, I, I, therapy to this day. I love therapy. I know you love therapy. I mean, therapy times, you know, Um, but I feel like I just wanted it to end. I wanted to be somewhere else and I didn't know how to get there. So of course that led me to feelings of, of that, especially when things were so relentless and my parents were so wrapped up in themselves and each other that they couldn't even give me the kind of support I needed. Um, But 
that being said, no, I never attempted. There was times I just, I really felt like I was coming close, but I was, I was, I think I had vulnerability on my side and I think I was just couldn't hold it. And I think I would act out, I would cut school or do whatever. But um, my dad left in eighth grade. It was like the final straw. Uh, my mom took a nap and he left, he left. Um, he communicated with us, but didn't tell us where he lived for a year. Wow. And that time my mom went into a deep depression. The pool we had became a pond. Um, garbage was overloaded in our garage because things got neglected. The garbage bills weren't paid. Piled high. We, we weren't getting new clothes. Um, I was starting my freshman year of high school. Eventually my mother, I, a health inspector had come because there was reports of rats in the neighborhood. And for some magical reason, no one was home. And he knocked on the door and she happened to answer it. And she was just begging in her mind, praying to Jesus God not to go into the garage. And he didn't. And that was her turning point. She hired someone Why to clean it up. not to go to the garage? What was in the garage? Was she hoarding or? Piled, 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 piled to the rafters with garbage. So that garbage was her was... turning point of saying, like, is that when she was like, I need to get this my. This is it. I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to get better. I'm going to, I'm going to move forward. I'm not going to mourn this guy who left me because it's actually the best thing he ever did, which she eventually said, the best thing your father ever did was leave me. And, um, but I mean, she started, you know, when he initially left, you know, she did the thing her mom did. She rode around in the car with one of us or all of us looking for him in the streets. And we were just like, I mean, it wasn't even mournful. We were like, let him go, like, give us a break. I mean, by that time I was 12, my sister's seven years older than me. My brother's three years older than me. So we were, we were ready for him. Um, uh, the damage had already kind of set in for all of us as kids. I mean, my brother has struggled deeply with drug and alcohol addiction, been in and out of prison. Um, it's something he's very open about. It's like, he's very sons of anarchy almost, which is so funny that we're so close and that we, uh, um, we shared a room together. But, um, you know, we've all had, you know, my sister's had her own struggles in life and we've all come out, you know, the other side. And um, our mother did ask for forgiveness and we're lucky for that. And then my mother and father maintained a civil, even decent friendship afterwards. Um, and we're able to co- you know, co-parent and, and uh, be there for us. Um, sometimes you think too little too late, but I think they did the best they could. How did you get to the point? I know I'm taking like kind of a curve here, but how did you, what, when did you get out? Like, when was the point where you left home and left San Francisco and then you moved to New York? And then was that, right. was that an age where you in college and you just went, I need to get out and have a fresh start? How did that all go down? Well, to sort of zip through high school, um, I knew a kid who was younger than me, uh, a year younger than me that I met on a ski trip for high school. I know now that I was just in love with him. And I was, it, it was making quite a lot of sense my junior year. Um, it caused me a lot of pain and depression, but like I'd spend the night at his house and we'd share a bed and all this stuff. So it was all just very like, amazing but also terrifying and I didn't know what to do with myself and he was dating uh, a girlfriend of mine and I just went into a deep depression um, and I was hospitalized um, for about a month um, my like my boy interrupted moment and I was having real issues with my mom at the time because she was like focusing on her you know I'm gonna spruce up my life and I, I felt you know ignored in a different way so I just had a lot of rage towards her and she was getting calls that I was cutting school. She didn't know what to do. She, I was having suicidal thoughts. I would say I'd want to die. And she was just like, I'm going to take you to see this guy today. And he just wants to talk to you and assess you. But, you know, she knew they would keep me. And um, I felt betrayed by that. And then we worked through it. Stayed there for a month. It was probably one of the most amazing times of my life. I met so many different people. We went double bicycle riding and Golden Gate Park, we went to the public pool, we went bowling. I mean, I learned a lot. It was my first experience being out of my circle of people, you know, in my small, smaller town and being with all these people that were from all over the place and um, having issues and having depression. 
And that's when I started medication. And keep in mind, this is before Prozac. So things were quite, you know, the playing of drugs was quite intense. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and they'd be drawing my blood just to check my levels and all this stuff. So um, eventually I was released from there. I just felt like I was ugly. No one liked me. There was just all this fear focused on that in particular. Then, you know, I went back my senior year of high school. Um, my guidance counselor, God lover, Tori Nunley, may she rest in peace. She was solely responsible for me graduating. Um, I was in night school every night and in school every day, but I made it through. And then, um, you know, I wanted to leave for LA right after. I knew I wanted to be an actor. I want to leave to LA. But then I thought, my mom put the fear of God, you won't have medical insurance. You won't blah, blah, blah. And, and throwing all this sort of naysaying my way. So basically I went to junior college and that's when I started doing um, theater. And I met uh, a few people there. And uh, one of the people now who's a big Hollywood director is Craig Brewer, who wrote Hustle and Flow, Black Snake Moan, just directed um, the new Coming to America. Amazing guy, met him when we were young and I started doing his plays. And then from there, I met a director who, um, uh, he went on to direct the film Powder and he had put me in one of his first films. And then I just started doing regional theater. And then from there, I started going, well, where else does this go? And um, eventually found uh, my way to New York when I was auditioning for conservatories, acting conservatories. During that whole time, during my high school and my you know, early junior college days, I was dating women. Um, I think I'd grown into my body and my face and I was what people would consider, you know, sort of good looking and leadish actor looking. And I just played this role of being like, oh, I'm gonna have, you know, I'm gonna sleep with her and I'm gonna you know, go, even though I knew, in my mind I couldn't accept it yet but I knew so you, like, I was so like you were in you were in college and you were still and out of college still dating women yeah but it, again the the junior college I went to DVC was in my town okay. so it wasn't like I got to go to San Francisco or anything like that which was you know 25 30 miles away um and then I moved to New York and I was well I ended up having a, a little fling with a straight guy that I was in a play with <clears throat> but he wasn't into it, but he had come on to me and I was like, Oh, and this is where I first started being like, Oh, okay. But then we had a fling and midway through, he's like, yeah, I'm not into this. And it, I took it as like me, but it was just him just not experimenting and not being into the situation and me sort of being the same way. And I just felt, um, I think that was the start of my sort of crazy and reactionary um, behavior that, you know, my, my mom had kind of displayed and were, can I interrupt and ask you, were you, were you on medication at this point? Cause you kind of talked about, no. sorry, you went to the, um, the, in, what were it, was it an institution or like in the, where you lived for the no, month? It was, a, it, was it, it was the, it was the psych ward of a, a of a hospital in Berkeley okay. called Herrick hospital at the time. Now it's Altivates. I can't imagine what that was like, you know, being, told that you were going to talk to somebody and being dropped off, just the amount of aban like abandonment issues that you must have from growing up, you know, bringing that into your adulthood and then kind of finally breaking free, going to New York, doing plays, doing all the things that you've done in your life. Really amazing that you were able to you know, something that I find really interesting about people that have gone through trauma are we're fighters, we're fighters, mm -hmm. and you're a fighter, yeah. and I'm a fighter, and it's like, you just want to, you want to keep going, and, it, and a lot of times, it's following dreams, and just knowing that you have to go on, and there's a reason why we're all here, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm very much like that, I'm very much like, it, it can only get so bad before you're like, well, do I live or die, and then you have to move forward. I'm a very resilient person, um, I know that about myself, especially like I say now, and I'm by no means finished with my, you know, mental health journey at all, but I do know how to handle things so they're not as strong as they were when I was young. But you know what's that. interesting is it's like, I'm sorry to talk over you, but it's like, I've heard these stories so many times in my life mm -hmm. of 
Michael, my friend, Michael, who did a podcast, like he was engaged, you know, mm -hmm. our society is, tells you that you have, you have to be interested in women. If you're a man, for example, that's gay. And mm -hmm. I've said this before, I can't imagine the pain of somebody telling me that I have to marry or date a woman. It's just like two yeah. pieces to me that don't, I, I would never do that. And that would be trauma. That would, that's trauma yeah. right there. Well, so, I, not only that, I decided to abandon myself, you know, like because living, living a lie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because we'll also keep in mind, my track was to be a big actor. My, my track was very clear. And I was being very um, noticed in my school, you know, in the 90s, being out as an actor wasn't a thing. So I was like, well, I don't want to lose this one thing I'm good at. So I would cling on to that as an excuse or, oh, I don't want to break my mother's heart kind of excuse. And then eventually it just got to a point where um, I had a brief affair with someone that I was in school with. And I just knew um, it was, you know, I knew. I just knew then. And I knew I had to start exploring it. I still had trouble expressing it to even my therapist at the time, but I knew I had to explore it in some way. So I was taking real baby steps. I wasn't going to bars, but I'd like go to the quad cinema and watch, you know, an artsy gay movie and, and not be ashamed of it and, and da, 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 da. And then, you know, one day I was visiting home and a friend of mine had a friend that was in a play and um, me and that person, were drawn to each other and that was my first relationship and I came out and I moved back to um I ended up going back to New York but then moving back here to to pursue that and then and then tell me like from then on I mean not to skip ahead but then did you how long were you in New York and then when did you come out to Hollywood so were you like, I was in New York from uh I was in New York for about four years then I came back to San Francisco to continue the relationship with my boyfriend at the time, who is now my dearest friend in the world. Then I did theater up the ranks in, all in a year. And then we, he had graduated uh, from Berkeley and um, uh, we moved down to LA. But by that point we knew our relationship wasn't working any further. And I had already displayed all the unhealthy behaviors I had learned as a kid. I mean, and he didn't know how to handle that kind of like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, like this dude is fucking nuts. Um, even though there was that tremendous care and love, um, it just, it, it didn't need to exist the way it was existing. And so we eventually broke up. And then during that week, my, my father, and I moved to LA and I was incredibly depressed. I had, uh, my body manifests things in stress. So I had broken out in this tremendously painful rash all over my body. So I didn't feel, you know, sexually attractive. I didn't feel happy at all. And then when we broke up, my father died in the same week. And that threw me in. And this is my first year in, in um, LA. That threw me into such a deep, dark, dark place to where suicide again became an option. So it was like, a, it's been like a reoccurring pattern in your life of getting, I mean, I know that you said- It's never been that bad since, yeah. but yeah, 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 reoccurring for sure. And then, and then how did, but how did you, how were you able to like go on? I mean, what's interesting about you is you can go to these dark places, right? Mm -hmm. And, but like, if you know, if if anyone knows you, they're like, oh my God, he's so funny. He's so funny. Like you're yes. always like doing voices and characters. And do you feel kind of like, sometimes I describe it for me as like, I'm like the toy, like monkey, like that, like the jack in the box that you take out of the box. And I have to perform to get people to like me. Are you like that mm -hmm. too? But in deep in my own life, like I've talked about this on the podcast, I've, I struggled with suicidal thoughts, like in the past when I really got to like my darkest place where I just didn't want to go on anymore. And I kind of talked which, about- Which I have to say just breaks my heart, Megan, because you are just, you're so loved, not only by me, by your husband, by your, by your friends who I've met that truly love you. 
I just think you're a miraculous person. And I thought that's from the day I met you, how funny you were. And I think that we both do operate. I think humor for us is very, it's our protection. It's our, it's our joy too. And sometimes it can hinder what we need to take care of. And sometimes it can really, really help us. For me, acting was such a great thing because I could really get in touch with my darkness. I could really get in touch with my pain. I could really get in touch with my anger. But I like to relax and be chill and just laugh. I just love laughing. Like, it's just, it's just so much fucking fun, you know? I mean. I'm like that too. I love to yeah. laugh. If I can't, yeah. if we can't like live our lives knowing, I mean, I think it's also like really difficult right now, just being in the place where we are. You say that about me, by the way, how loved I am. Like you're so loved, but nobody can understand the struggle of when you're haunted by your past and the, it's almost like you're haunted by your childhood, you know, and these, these memories and these feelings, Mm -hmm. it's like, they're never going to go away. Mm -hmm. But they won't, they won't be as strong once we know how to deal with them. And I think most powerful people, most people that own themselves come from a great deal of pain. You know, we're, we're not alone at all. And um, I mean, even now it's like you hear like, you know, celebrities are coming out talking about how depressed. it's almost a trend, you know, but, you know, I try not to like see it that way. I see it as that, well, this is the truth. Now we're seeing the truth of how much people go through such anguish and pain and, and judge themselves. And, and, you know, we all have our isms. How did I you, think- how did you like, when was the point then like where you you know, you were in acting class, you like, we met each other, you were working mm-hmm. as an actor. I met, I met you, I met you, I guess, like within the first two weeks, Ron was dating you. So I basically met you guys at the, um, at the same time, because I think we met at um, uh, the act, our acting, uh, uh, Ron and my's acting teacher, uh, Lee Kelton Smith, the wonderful Lee Kelton Smith. She had a, a Christmas party. And that's where we met. Ron had brought you and that's where we met. Up there in uh, I remember that. Coldwater Canyon, like, remember? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I remember lifting, lifting up your pants going, oh, I love your shoes, but then you had sports socks on with like ankle booties. No, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was wearing, I was wearing pants and like probably boots, but I had like yeah, mid-patch socks. You looked amazing. That sounds like something I would do. Oh, um, we were laughing. We were laughing so hard. But how, okay, so when you, so then not to skip ahead, but then how did you, like you were doing like odd jobs, like as an actor and working mm-hmm. in and working in shows and that kind of stuff. And then I remember going to our friend Jenny Blong's wedding. Your, mm. this, oh my God. I mean, you're, you, were, you are flash forwarding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah, already established a tremendous friendship by that point. Yeah. yeah. Um. Did you, that's when you were working for Jeff Lewis, right? Yes. Oh, you're skipping it. Yeah. Jeff Lewis lived right next door to um, Ron. Ron Livingston, yeah. who's yeah. Jackie's married to her, his brother. Um, yes. What was that like? Like skipping ahead? I know we're kind of kind of going in different directions. No, I, I get it. We, we only have so much time. <laughs> oh, God. We can make this podcast two hours. But you're all part, part two. Part two. Um, what was that like working for Jeff? And I'm asking this because I'm going to tell you, I, I watched, I rewatched um, your season of Flipping Out because I couldn't, I couldn't remember like what had happened, and it's been like years now. But I, yeah, you need to remind me. Yeah, Jeff Lewis, like, is the one of the one things that has gotten me through COVID. I listened to his radio show mm-hmm. on Sirius XM, and he's so mm-hmm. funny and so mm-hmm. real. Like, he'll tell stories about him struggling. I think the interesting thing, mm-hmm. though, is when I listen to him now and I see what you went through and what, like, I mean, he seemed, like, legitimately insane. And I can't imagine, like, working for somebody that was that difficult to work for. But then I, I hear him now and I don't know him personally, but I listen to him five days a week and I go on my speed walks and I'm laughing the whole time. So tell me what that mm-hmm. was like. Cause I, I only see what I saw in the reality show. Well, I met Jeff because he walked into a hair salon, um, a very like 
small boutique hair salon because I worked at a hair salon because I knew I could get my hair cut for free and go on auditions. Um, yeah, he came in. He was the early morning client, tall, handsome guy comes in. And then we immediately, I don't know how we just, we, you know, Jeff and I connected very well. We're the same sign and we're the same age. And we just immediately were like, he's very quick. He's very funny. I'm quick and funny. And we just had this dialogue almost immediately. So within the first five minutes, he's like, would you want to work for me? I'm like, I don't know what you do. <laughs> I don't know what you do. And he's like, I do this. And he gave me a card. I'm like, well, you know, I work here, blah, 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 blah. Well, that, that job was just requiring way too many hours for me. I couldn't sit behind a desk for eight hours a day, six days a week. So I remember going up and helping a, a very dear friend of mine. Um, he, he owns business property. And I, <laughs> I went up there to like do hard labor, like paint the side of a commercial building and like scrub mold off shingles. And like that clearly wasn't the job for me. So when I came back down, I still had we set up an interview and, um, you know, I started working for him and Ryan Brown at the time, his partner at the time, uh, business partner, um, half and half. And then about, you know, six months later, Jeff took me on uh, full time and I worked for him for almost, I think, five years, a long time. Wow. Um, Jeff was, Jeff was funny. But keep in mind, during the first season, a lot of shit was going down. The housing crisis was starting. He was juggling so much. I was already so deep into that job and just there was no growth for me there at all. And I just didn't want to be there anymore. Um, and I just tend to be that way. Once I'm unhappy, it just continues and I have to move on. It's just, um, but I'm, I'm also someone who's very loyal. So I'll stay. And I think Jeff really, um, you know, he knew it was like, you got to go at some point. He did ask me, I knew he said, I need you to do this show. I remember I, I went to drive his car to go get it washed. And they were in the process of, you know, trying to sell the show. And it was HDTV and Bravo that was interested. And Bravo was like, we want everybody. We want Bowman. We want Zoila. We want Jenny. We want Chris. We want, uh, you know, obviously Jeff. And um, he came out right when I came back. And I was like considering, I'm like, you're going to quit. You're going to quit today. You, you know, unless there's a sign that you shouldn't, you're going to quit today. And he came out to the car when I pulled up, which is not something he normally did. And he was like, Bravo took it. I need you to do this. Please do this. And um, like, let's just stick together and do this. And I, I didn't tell him that I was um, considering, you know, really quitting. But Jeff was very intuitive. And I think he knew on some level that I wasn't completely happy and was sort of asking me to stay on for that first season, which was not a pleasant experience for me, but I don't think it was entirely pleasant for everyone. So, but Jeff is the worst and best boss I ever had. He genuinely how, cared how about is me. He, how is he the best boss you ever had? I think people that watch- Oh, he really, he, he, he really took a great concern about my financial well-being. He was like, where are you at? Where did I would get a bonus every Christmas. Um, that was pretty nice. And then if I did a good job in a particular week, he'd throw some money my way. He, um, he could be generous that way. I remember one time I was going through something and he had gone to Hawaii and I would still work. You know, I'd still do jobs around the house, even when they were gone, just to fulfill my week. And, you know, of course, he'd always call it 930 sharp to make sure I was there. You better answer that phone. <clears throat> but um, I remember him going, just calling one day and going, hey, I was just thinking, he'd probably hate that I said this, but um, it's been so many years, but he said, listen, I'm thinking about you and I just want you to know that, you know, you're really doing good for yourself. You're in therapy, you're working on your stuff. And I just want you to know that, you know, I'm thinking about you and I'm hoping you're okay, which was out of the ordinary. And um, I'll never forget that. I mean, of course, we had many moments I wanted to kill him after that. And I'm sure he wanted to kill me. But we were both very witty, very quick, and very biting. And at times, that could be amazing. And at times, that was not conducive. And he was like, at the end of the day, I'm your fucking boss. <laughs> and yeah. I had to acknowledge that as well. And I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't happy towards the end. So before the second season started, I don't even think Bravo knew he had let me go. I mean, he put it in words 
which is really the story of my life. People always put it into words, but I know before it happens because um, I don't want to be the one who quits. But um, yeah, and then we moved on. But he had referred me for makeup to people after that. Yeah, um, talk I, about that because something, I, I mean, that's something that I, I mean, I don't know Jeff Lewis as a person, but just as like his super fan, that's why I like him so much is for his, like how imperfect he is and how real he is. And if you listen- He's very, that, he's a very genuine person. Yeah. He, and what you see is what you get. He ta has talked about you recently um, and how he liked you. And it's just, I, I like people that are imperfect and, and mm -hmm. are real and show it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I listen to him and I find him so fascinating. But I think like you said, like in life, I've said this on every episode that everything happens for a reason. So he really freed you to go mm -hmm. in and get to the place where you are now. So you're a very successful makeup artist in Hollywood and you're still acting. So talk about that. Well, I don't know how successful or famous I am. I do make my living at it, which I'm grateful for. Thank you for that, you know, those lovely comments. Um, but um, yeah, he definitely, he knew, he was like, you're meant for more than this. Get out there, you know? Like, I know now that's what he was like. But yeah, I started doing makeup shortly before I left because my friend was a, an agent at a big uh, makeup artist rep. Big, you know, Rachel Zoe was there, Mark Townsend, Kaylee, like all these people who do really, really famous people. So basically my friend just started having the assistant send me makeup in the mail, send me brushes from their archives, you know, because Chanel and all these other companies give these agencies makeup so that the artists will use them on the celebrities. So I was getting all this, like thousands of dollars worth of makeup in the mail. I made a kit. And then once I, he felt it was sufficient enough, he said, I'm putting you on this job. Don't embarrass me. And my first job was a Yin Yang Twins video uh, assisting the incredible Sammy Morbit, directed by Maria Matsukas. Yeah, that was in 2005 or 2006. And um, I just started assisting famous artists. I mean, I've worked with, you know, been around incredible photographers like Ellen Von Unworth, the late Peter Lindbergh, uh, celebrities like, you know, Reese Witherspoon, um, Jessica Biel. Um, I mean, all kinds. I mean, it, it, sometimes I'm clouded by all the celebrities I've been around because, you know, you're just like, huh? Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. Just, people. they're just people like everyone else. That was my learning curve into makeup. And that's how that started. And then are you, so you're still acting though. You have a movie out yeah. now. What is your, yeah. what's the movie called for my list? Uh, the, uh, the film is um, called, oh, From Zero to I Love You, directed by Doug Spearman. Um, starring it's, a, it's on Prime. It's available. Yeah, it's on, it's on Amazon Prime. You can look it up. From Zero to I Love You, starring Daryl Stevens, who's the lead and also my best friend and brother in the world. Daryl. Surprise, yeah. Daryl. Daryl's the best. I know. He's, he's I had a, to bring up the surprise story. I'm sorry. Oh, Just really quickly. Let's talk about surprise. And then I want to close with like two more questions, but can we tell the listeners on a happy note, the surprise story? Cause it's kind of funny. Well, you, I forget it's genuine origin, but I know it, it was started because we were like popping out of bushes we went yeah, to some restaurant in West Hollywood and we would hide behind bushes and we'd be like, surprise, like we were paparazzi <laughs> or something. I yeah. can't remember because there were drinks involved. But I remember yeah. we all took turns doing our surprise. And then you, of course, were just on a flat surface wearing Ugg boots. And you went, surprise. And then you jumped and then you just landed on the ground and you fell, you rolled over and you hit your head on a tire of a parked car. <laughs> So we that were, played on, it just it just sort of took and we say it even when it doesn't make sense it's just like every time every time I talked to you like one time we were at I was at the Grove which is a shopping center in LA and oh Stephen and Daryl were at the Grove and I enjoy doing my imitation of Patrick Swayze and uh, Dirty Dancing where he jumps off the stage so that's what I do when I say surprise and I legitimately <laughs> did a flying leap in front of Abercrombie and Fitch that horrible like perfume cloud and we're, we're, like, we're the we're the shirtless models yeah out. and I just did it in front of the store totally by myself and Daryl and Stephen were just like standing there and I was like surprise 
So now to this day, like anytime I talk to either of them or message them, I'm like, surprise. It's our little like ongoing joke. So um, I just want to kind of like close with a couple things. So you're still acting, you're doing makeup, even though yeah. like the whole town is yeah. closed down because of COVID. Are you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't, I haven't done it in a while for sure. Do you feel like, like, I mean, we, we talk about that, like I talk about openly that I'm still struggling. I'm still, you know, on medication. I might be for the rest of my life. Um, Cause I realized I needed it. Do you, mm -hmm. do you feel like you're, you're at a place where you feel like you're in a good place or is this like a constant thing where you're still in therapy like me and you know, how, how are you doing these days? Well, awful. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic, but I'm yeah. pretty good considering. Absolutely. I mean, I, I take medication as well, um, especially during this time because I live alone. So I'm alone. And um, but I do therapy every um, every Tuesday morning at 8 a.m. Um, I have a great therapist, Carrie Browning, who who um, who really teaches me a lot of um, um, great tangible exercises and breathing and, and, and all that kind of stuff to sort of center myself. So it's very action oriented. It's very, and that really, really exercise oriented. So it really, really, really helps me. Um, and quite rapidly because we sort of have a goal and a time limit, you know, but um, yeah, I think I'm doing pretty good. I mean, I keep on keeping on. That's it, what you it, have to do. Yeah. I mean, what are the options? It's like you either get through this. We're in a horrible time for people that already struggle with, you know, um, I, I don't want to call it mental illness, but you know, it's just like anything else. If you have a broken leg, you're not going to just like leave your leg broken and not do anything with it. It is a mental illness. And the fact that it's your brain, like your brain has yeah. a cold, certain, certain things aren't going through the, the tunnels as they should. And sometimes we need help for those little tunnels to be repaired and, you know, all and those you, and you also, serotonin to go through. Yeah. It also seems to me like you have, like, must have been diagnosed with PTSD, like complex PTSD. You no, know, I never have been. Okay. But I'm realizing now that I, I, yeah, I'm realizing now, and my, my therapist has also said that, you know, you've gone through a serious amount of trauma. You've been, um, you know, you've been in survival mode since you were young. And that's affect, you know, that affects everything. You know, my relationships and I still am learning how to balance interpersonal romantic relationships. I think I've got friends down, I have amazing friends. And I like to think that I'm a very supportive, active and cheerleading friend for sure. But I'm learning. And if, you know, Dan Levy is listening to this, by all means, you know, if you're single, call, call me, we can do this. God, I love Dan Levy. I love God. I love him. He used to live directly across the street from me, Megan. Directly oh, I, across the street. I can't even take it. I can't even take that. I would have. Uh, I love that show so deeply. Well, in closing, I first yes. of all, I just want to thank you because I think you know that how much I love you and my husband loves you and you're just a brilliant, funny. You're just the best. I can't put into words how much I love you. And I want to just add really quickly, because I've decided at the end of every podcast, I'm going to try to talk about something that's important to me right now. Um, you know, we all have to support local business in California. The latest statistic in LA County, every six minutes, somebody dies of COVID. Um, so our businesses are highly impacted by being closed, the restaurants, you know, the stores, people going into stores are very highly impacted. Uh, what I just want to give a shout out to one of my favorite stores that I love to shop. If you love like candles and rugs and home decor, like I do, there's an adorable store with a, I love the owner. It's called Gumtree and the website is called gumtreela.com. And any user that has never shopped online before, if you use this code WELCOME10, you'll get 10% off. So I just wanted to try and support a business that I personally love and all these businesses are being affected. 
And um, moving forward, I'm going to try and give a shout out to local businesses every episode. So in closing, thank you, Stephen. I love you. I love and you, sweetheart. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. And I just want to remind everybody to keep living, keep praying, and keep growing. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.